I want you to have a Bible tonight. We're going to look at a couple of different places. So you can get to it on version on your phone, the Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, there's some that people have left behind. Run, grab one. You won't bother me. I mean, I want you to grab one. I want you to be able to look along with us. We're going to look in a book called 1 Samuel, if you want to get your table of contents and find it there. Um, we'll get there in a second. When I was... When I was in between sixth grade and seventh grade, so right where some of you guys are at, um, my, my parents came in and I, I had grown up in Colleen, Texas. I was born in Colleen, Texas, and you should, you should pity me for that. Um, born there and lived there all my life. And after I finished sixth grade, my parents came in and they said, hey, sit down. My brother, they said, uh, my dad was military. They said, hey, we are moving and we are moving to Germany. And I, I mean, I'd never, I'd never lived anywhere outside of Colleen. And I mean, all of my friends that lived in the same neighborhood, the same block, that was a different day than it is now where we, I mean, we played out in our, in our neighborhood all day long, every day, every, all summer. I mean, I had these close friends and all of a sudden we're going to move to another continent. And this again was before internet. This was before, you know, where you could communicate to people. All you could do was write letters and it took two weeks to get there and then two weeks to get back. So if you wrote, it took a month. I mean, my world got turned upside down. So we move into Germany and, and, and we move into our, our apartment where we're living. And I kind of went through this funk where as an introverted person anyway, like I just hold up inside our apartment. And I was uh, doing stuff with myself, like reading, you know, reading books, playing games, things like that. But I mean, I didn't go outside. I don't think I saw like the sun, you know, in like several days because I, I just, I didn't know anybody. And I remember my mom came home one day from something and she walks in and she says, okay, here's the deal. I'm kicking, you out of the, I'm kicking you out of the house. And she said, you're out, and I don't want you to come back until you've met some people. Now, I was an introverted, soon-to-be seventh grader in another country. Now, we lived on an army base, so people spoke English and stuff like that, but I don't know a soul on the army base other than my family members. And my mom is just like, kick me out. And I'm thinking, I can't come back till I meet somebody. I'm going to be homeless for the rest of my life, you know, because there's just no way. And I remember walking around kind of the street where we lived in, and we had this building. It was called the MYA, the, the Mannheim, which was the city we lived in, the Mannheim Youth Activities. And so I walk in, um, I nothing else to do. It's like, and, and I find out they're having an UNO tournament. And uh, it was probably hipper at the time than it is now. But I mean, I got no friends. I got nothing. So I sit down and, and, and enter this UNO tournament. And I actually win it because I am a pretty sharp UNO player, if, if I do say so myself. I win and I, I, they give me as my prize this knockoff. It's not a legitimate thing. This fake Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. And I remember talking to some of these guys that were sitting there playing Uno. And I go home, like proof, look, mom and dad, I talked to somebody. I even want a jersey because I played Uno. And so you can let me back inside now. I don't remember those guys that I met. But I remember that whole afternoon because it was traumatic for me. I mean, it ended up being good. I ended up really in those three years in Germany coming into my own and getting more confident and becoming uh, a little bit more outside of myself and making some of the best friends I had. But, but that day was so traumatic for me because I was so afraid of trying to make friends, being rejected, all of those things that goes into that. And, and man, it, it's at, at my age now, I still remember it. Friendships, friendships are, are, are great, but they can also be messy. 
I mean, you're living in a time in your life now where you experience that more than you ever will. And you get to be my age, you know, friendships aren't as chaotic and as messy and as crazy as they can be for you guys. And maybe you have a great set of friends and you don't experience any things we're talking about tonight. I mean, you ought to just thank God for that. But most of us in the room, I mean, we're wrestling through relationships and friends and, and do these friends love me as much as I love them? And am I on the outside looking in or am I on the inside looking out? And I don't even really know. And it's just messy. I mean, let me just give you some examples because, and you'll, you'll, you'll go, oh yeah, I, I see that. Let's just talk about like friendships and, and dating. Now I hope one day, I hope one day you marry your best friend. That would be the greatest thing that could happen. That's what I did. It's awesome. Hope you marry your best friend. But, but if you start dating your best friend now and it doesn't work out, I mean, let's, let's, let's hope that it does. We'll pray that, it, but if it doesn't, Here's what's gonna happen. And some of you have experienced this. You will, no, you will no longer be friends, right? Am I wrong? Happens occasionally, maybe. Most of the time, hey, my best friend, and man, I, I love you, and you love me, we're gonna start dating, and then something happens, and it goes haywire, and we've broken up. All of a sudden, that friendship gets really, really messy because you can't go back to the friends that you were because you've had much more intimate conversations and your relationship was different. You've probably like kissed him or her and you haven't done that with your other friends. So it's just different. And so all of a sudden you're trying to backtrack and it doesn't really work out and the friendship's gotta get crazy. And then they start dating somebody else and it's like World War III happens for you. You know, I, I remember my, my very first girlfriend, Danielle Simpson, not Danielle, that would be normal. Danielle, <laughs> I don't know whose mom named it. Apologies if your name's Danielle or it's family, it's just odd. Danielle Simpson and I, first girlfriend, and it's the awkward, you know, like, you know, doing you know what we're doing, writing notes back and forth. And, and um, she dumps me. I, I don't know why. Um, she dumps me, and I, and I remember as soon after she dumped me, she started dating this other guy. Now, here's what was weird. Danielle had a twin sister. No, it doesn't go there. I didn't have that kind of game by any means. I don't even know how I got a girlfriend in the first place. These two twin sisters start dating two twin brothers. That's just weird, like odd. I remember though, I'm out like riding my 10 speed because 10 speeds were cool back in the 80s. And I, and I remember seeing Danielle and my, my now ex-girlfriend who had been a friend of mine and now we're not friends. And all of a sudden she's dating this guy. And I remember the feelings inside of me. I remember a lot of these things because they were traumatic experiences. I remember like how, why, you know, I, I'm gonna show her. And in, in my seventh grade mind, showing her was going to be like, showing off a bike trick on my 10-speed in front of her and her boyfriend to show you, you could be with this guy. I'll take my 10-speed off a curb, which I did face forward. Um, plant right in front of him. Get up like, oh, I'm an idiot, like run away. And I remember those moments. We were never friends again. Um, after that, it was just weird. Doesn't have to be that. You have a friend. Your friend starts dating somebody else. And all of a sudden, you and your friend used to hang out all the time. You used to have a bunch of shared stories. Now, all of a sudden, just let's call it what it is, you're, you're, you're second class now because you're not as good looking as the boyfriend or girlfriend. And, and so, so they're hanging out. You're like, hey, you want to hang out? No, I can't because I'm doing something else. You can come hang out with us. And you're like, thanks, but no thanks because the third wheel's weird, you know? And so, um, and so the, the relationship, you and your friend, it gets messy. You might even harbor some bitterness against the boyfriend or girlfriend because it's getting messy. And then they break up and they come back to you and you're still mad. So you like treat them bad. It's just complicated. 
Or even worse, what about when your group of friends, not you and some of us, two people in your friend group start dating each other and then they break up and all of a sudden you've got to pick sides, right? You've been there? Just, that's, just, that's just dating and friendships. We're not even talking about how friendships get messy when a friend betrays you or a friend's parents don't like you or, or, or a friend accuses you of something that you didn't do. All of those things. Stay with me. Friendships, friendships can be difficult, but we've got to have them. God created you and he created me to have friendships. And so I want you to walk out with two things tonight. One, I want you to walk out remembering this and knowing this, that Jesus-centered friendships matter. They do. Jesus-centered friendships matter. As messy as they can be, as painful as they can be, Jesus-centered friendships matter. And the other thing I want you to walk out is something tonight to do to make those Jesus-centered friendships better. And we'll kind of come to that at the end and give you some ideas to talk. But I'm hoping you'll walk out tonight going, I'm going to do something because Jesus-centered friendships matter. I'm going to do something to make them matter. Well, we're going to look at the life tonight of a guy who was an underdog. His story is in 1 Samuel and, it talk, and we're going to look at some friendships. It's a guy named David. Now, if you, if you grew up in church or you've been to church often, you might recognize David's name and you'll recognize him as King David. And you might go, what I know about King David is he was a king, which he's not really an underdog. I mean, he actually happened to become the most powerful king in all of Israel's history. But it wasn't always that way. You see, if we go back, and we're not gonna read all the stories, we're gonna cover a lot of chapters, so I'm just gonna give you briefly what happened. Israel's a nation, and they are what we call a theocracy. They don't have a king, their king is God. And so God speaks through prophets and, and, the, and the country, the nation does what God calls them to do. But the nation of Israel, they're looking around and they see all these nations around them and they've got a king and they've got a king and they've got a queen and they've got a king. And they're like, we don't have anything. And people are like, what's wrong with y'all? You know, you, oh, you have God's your king. That's kind of weird. And so they go to Samuel, who this book's named after, and they go, Samuel, we want a king. And so Samuel goes to God and says, God, the people want a king. And God goes, no, they don't. And they go, yes, we do. And God goes, no, you don't. And they go, yes, we do. And they go back and forth. You don't, we do. And so God says, fine. If you want a king to replace me, a human king, I'll give you that. And so we meet the very first king of Israel. His name's Saul. Now, what we know about Saul is Saul looks like a king. The scripture says that he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, which means like the biggest guy in the kingdom Saul looks down at him because that guy comes up to Saul's shoulder. So Saul's the biggest guy around. He, I mean, he's like a, a, a middle linebacker. He's, I mean, he's powerful. He's the one that nobody's messing with. And they go, yes, we've got the best king ever. You know, we get like, you know, go to battle and, and the little king from the neighbor's, neighboring country comes out. We're gonna go check out our king. And they're gonna be like, okay, you can have the land. You know, and so, so they have Saul and Saul starts off pretty good. But Saul gets kind of manic in this relationship with God. And sometimes he does what God wants and sometimes he doesn't. And, and it's kind of back and forth. And so finally God gets to the point where he goes, I'm done with Saul. because Saul doesn't know how to obey. And so I'm taking my blessing off of Saul and I'm going to anoint a new king. So he goes to Samuel, the prophet, and says, Samuel, I want you to call a meeting. And I want, to make sure, I want you to make sure that Jesse and Jesse's family is at the meeting church meeting. So, Jess, so Samuel travels and, and, and he, people come and he invites Jesse and Jesse's sons. And what they soon find out is that Samuel, through God, is, a, is about to anoint the new king. It's going to be who God's placed his favor on. And he's going to come out of Jesse's family. 
So Jesse's there with his sons and Samuel comes in and they finish the church service. And so he's going to anoint the new king with oil. And so the oldest son, who's like the biggest, he's the one that's like, you know, led the family. He's the one that beats up all the other brothers. They, they stand him up and they're like, it's going to be him. And God speaks to Samuel. And, and you just imagine that this big guy comes up and Samuel goes, nope, it's not him. And the guy's like, uh-oh, you know, that's not good. My little, my little brother's going to you know, be king one day. And they go to the second oldest. And God goes, nope. And the third oldest, God goes, nope. The fourth oldest, and they're like, now they're like, oh my goodness, it's gonna be like, you know, one of the younger guys. And, and in the side, Samuel goes through all of the line, all of the brothers that God said the king of kind. It's no, 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 no. And so Samuel's like, this is weird. And Samuel looks at Jesse and he goes, hey, do you got any other sons? I mean, you brought them all, right? And Jesse goes, well, not all of them. The youngest one, the youngest one's out with the sheep. Uh, well, we, somebody's got to take care of the sheep. And I mean, he's, he's like 13 and he's the runt. I mean, he's the one that all these guys beat up on. You know, he's, he like, he actually like plays the harp and stuff. He's not really a, a, a manly man like Saul. So he's taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, go get him. And they bring in this little boy, David. And God goes, that's him. The underdog, the kid that no one, when God said, bring your whole family, he didn't even get invited. That's how much of an underdog he was. They were like, they didn't even hire somebody to take care of the sheep so he could come. They're like, yeah, it's not worth it. Just stay, we'll save the money. This is the underdog. And Samuel, through God, says, that's him. And he's anointed king. So then you fast forward like one chapter and the Israelites are in a battle with the Philistines. Now Saul's still king. God's just anointed this kid. He's not gonna take it, but that's who God has picked out. And so they're having this battle and you might know this story. There's the Philistines, the bad guys, and the Israelites, the good guys. And, and what they've said is, hey, instead of going to war, you send a warrior, we'll send a warrior. And so they send this Philistine warrior. His name's Goliath. He's like a nine foot tall giant. He's huge. And so he walks out every, every morning. He's like, fee, fi, fo, fum. I didn't really say that. Um, but you know, something, you know, I'm a giant. I'm going to kill all of you. You know, send out your best warrior. And everybody's like, and eh, no, not me. David shows up. He doesn't get to go to battle. He's actually bringing bread and food to his brothers on the battlefield. He shows up and he sees this, this giant, Goliath, and he's mocking God and he's mocking the Israelites. And, and David, this runt underdog is like, what? why doesn't somebody go fight him? And they're like, dude, he's nine feet tall. His spear weighs six times as much as you do. Like, you know, you, and when it hit, it's not, a, it won't kill you when it pierces you. It's just going to fall on top of you and kill you. That's how big it is. And, and, and David's like, I'll go fight him. And people are like, it's crazy. You're a kid. You're the underdog. You're the little guy. David goes out. He meets Saul. Saul says, you can go fight him. Saul gives David his armor, the king's armor. David puts on, it doesn't even fit. He's a little guy. David says, I don't need this. David goes out. He gets some stones. And you, you probably know the story. Goliath mocks him. He's like, seriously? A, a, fifth grader, you know, I'm going kick you, you know. And David's like, yeah, really? Well, watch this. Bam! It hits him in the forehead with a stone and kills him. Picks up his sword and cuts his head off. And the Israelites are like, rock on. Yeah! And they, they take off. And the Philistines take off. And, and so all of a sudden, David goes from this underdog, not invited to the party. The underdog, the little guy that's going to take on the giant. And everybody starts to love him. We, we're going to pick up the story there. And I'm trying to go fast because I don't run out of time as we're trying to catch you up. So look in 1 Samuel chapter 18. What happens next is Saul, the king, invites David into the palace. 
He wants to get to know David. I mean, David's the one that just killed the giant. He killed Goliath. And David, David, Saul doesn't know anything about the anointing. And so he comes in and look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. We meet two, well, we're going to meet one person later. David ends up marrying a girl named Michael. I know that's a weird name for a girl, but in this day, girl named Michael, David marries her. She's Saul's daughter. So David becomes son-in-law to the king, and David also becomes best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. So he's married to the king's daughter and best friends with the king's son. And look in verse, chapter 18, verse 1. It's a little bit about David and Jonathan's best friend's relationship. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This is best friends forever. They wrote in Hebrew, BFF, but it was different Hebrew letter. They, I mean, this, that's who, that, it, it, the scripture says their soul was knit together. Jonathan is like, David, you're like, you're like my soul brother. I mean, like, we're gonna, let's, let's cut thumbs and trade blood. Let's, you know, I mean, we're, don't do that. That's dangerous. Um, verse two, and Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul said, you're going to stay here. You're best friends with my son. You're going to marry my daughter. I love you. You're, you're a part of the family. Verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So here's what's happened. This friendship has begun to develop and, and, and in, a, in a public way, Jonathan takes off his robe, which was the, the prince's robe. It was the, the robe that the son of the king wore. And David takes off his prince's robe and he gives it to David. And what he's basically saying is, David, you're not, you're not just a son-in-law. You're a, you're a son. You're not just my, you're just not my sister's husband. You and I, you and I are brothers. And, and, and we will be brothers for the rest of our lives. Then he gives him his armor. He gives him his sword. He gives him his bow and basically says this, David, I'm gonna trust you with my life. That, that's the kind of friendship that you and I want somebody that cares about us in that way that says, you and I, we're one. I mean, we're, I, I will always have your back. I'm gonna trust you with my life. And it says in here that they made a covenant together. Now, let me understand, explain what that word means and then we're gonna jump forward. For us, we might think like a contract, but the difference in a contract and a covenant is this. A contract is usually made between people who don't trust each other, and not always, but usually has like an expiration date. So I go to buy a car. I go to buy my Trailblazer years ago. And I go into Hewlett Chevrolet and I go, hey, I'd like to buy that Trailblazer. And they go, it's you know, $25,000 or whatever it costs. And I go, well, I don't have that. And they, I said, but I can, I can pay, pay you a little bit each month. And they go, okay, we don't know you. So we don't really trust you. So here's what we're gonna do. Here's a contract and we want you to sign it. And now that's legally binding that, that we're going to come take this truck back if you don't pay it. There might be some legal ramifications if you don't. And, and we agree and I sign that contract. And when you pay it off, it's yours, contract over. A covenant is usually made between people who do know each other and it usually has no expiration. So marriage would be like a covenant. Two people that know each other, promising each other a debt to each other and it doesn't have an expiration date. Now, what's interesting is there's this, this phenomenon that's been happening in India. Uh, they discovered about two years ago. Uh, it's called the one month wives. And what's happening in India, and it's, it's illegal, but they are, 
there's guys that are from other countries that are going to India on vacation and things like that. And they're going to be there for a month or, or so. And what they do is they marry a girl, an Indian girl. And when they marry her, they marry her with a marriage contract that is for one month. The divorce date is already in the documents. And the reason why they're doing that is because they're coming from other countries. A lot of them that uh, believe in Islam, they're Muslim, and they're not allowed to have sex outside of marriage. So what they've done is, it makes absolutely no sense, but they've said, we don't want to, you know, disobey Allah and have sex outside of marriage. So on my month vacation, I'm going to marry this girl, but it's going to last for a month. And then basically it's prostitution is what it is. Um, And it's illegal, but people were, were doing it. What that's a picture of is the picture of taking what's supposed to be a covenant and turning it into a contract. So, when Jonathan and David says they made a covenant, now the word made a covenant in the Hebrew, actually it says they cut a covenant. Here's what happened back in those day and age. If you made a covenant with somebody, the way that they did it is they would sacrifice an animal and they would sacrifice an animal and they would cut the animal in half. And they would, put, they, they would put the half of the animal over here and the half of the animal here. And when we made this promise, it was a covenant, we would make the promise and we would walk between the halves of the animal And what the covenant said is, if I break my promise, may it be done to me that was done to this animal. Okay, so that's a difference between a covenant and a contract coming to an end. So when you talk about a biblical understanding of marriage, which is a covenant, in the Old Testament days, when somebody took a a, a wife, the, the two dads would do this. They would cut the animal in half and the dads would walk through and they would say, basically, if your son does wrong to my daughter, may this be done to you. The divorce rates were a lot lower back then than they are now. You can understand. And so David and, I mean, and Jonathan, they make a covenant together. This is a friendship promise that says, hey, I've got your back through thick and thin, through high water, through troubled times. I'm here with you. And guess what happens? troubled times and they come quick. Look at what happens next. Look at chapter 18, verse 12. We were just in verse four. By verse 12, it says this. Saul, the king, was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And look down at verse 28. Verse 28 says this. It says, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And what, what happens is this. Saul ends up trying to kill David. He throws a spear at him a couple of times. And David takes off and he, and he runs because he's now back to the underdog again. I mean, the king of the most powerful nation of the nation has got his best soldiers, like his SWAT team, his Navy SEALs going after David. He's like, I want him killed because everybody likes him. They don't like me. So I want my best warriors go hunt him down. And David is running from his life. He and a ragtag bunch of guys that are hanging out with him that are kind of like against the king. And and they're they're living in caves as as the king's army is like hunting him down. And it gets even worse. 1 Samuel 20 we find David and Jonathan meeting. David's still on the run. He comes to Jonathan. We're not, you can read this later. And he goes to David. And David goes to Jonathan. He's like, hey, your dad's trying to kill me. Like, what is going on? What have I done? 
I don't, I don't even know what he's done, to, what I've done to make him want to kill me. And Jonathan says, I don't know. But once again, Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20 says, hey, I got your back because we're friends. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure my dad doesn't harm you. And look in chapter 20, verse 27 through 33. Saul, well, let me tell you what's happening. Saul is having a dinner party and he's invited David and he's going to try to kill David at the dinner party. David's not going to go. Jonathan, he's told Jonathan, I think your dad's going to try to kill me. And Jonathan goes, he's not. I'll try to figure it out. And look what happens in verse 27. David doesn't show up the first day for the, the party. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty again. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why is not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan told a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he's not come to the king's table. Remember, Saul wants to kill him. Jonathan's covering for him. Now look what happens, what Saul does. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, his own son. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. There's a translation for that in the living Bible that I'm not gonna say here. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? I don't even know what that means, but that sounds bad. <laughs> I don't want my dad to ever be like, you son of a perverse and wicked woman, you have shamed our family and your mother's nakedness. I'd be like, I don't know what that means, but it can't be good. For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered, look at this. Then Jonathan answered Saul's father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled a spear at him to strike him. Saul picks up his spear and throws it at his son. And Jonathan takes off. And Jonathan goes and finds David. And Jonathan goes, David, you were right. My dad does want to kill you. I think he wants to kill me now too. Go, get away, I'll protect you. And we find in 1 Samuel chapter 23, that they have another conversation. And Jonathan comes to David and basically says this to David. David, I understand that the way things work, I would be the next king because I'm the son of the king. But I know that God has chosen you. And because if you're my best friend, because we've committed and covenanted together, I am relinquishing the opportunity to be king so that you can be the rightful king. Friendship, deep friendship, God-centered friendship. So my question for you is this, who's your Jonathan? Who's the person in your life? Who's the friend that covenants with you? Who's the friend that says, you know what? Even at the risk of my own loss, I'll lift you up. You need that. I need that. If you don't have a Jonathan, we've got to find that Jonathan. So I told you one of the things I wanted you to walk out of here tonight is knowing that, that Jesus-centered friendships matter. And I want you to do something about it. Here's a couple things. Maybe you can do more than three. I'm gonna give you three ideas. One is this. If you don't have that friendship, you start praying right now. You start praying. If you're going to college, you better start praying double time because you're going to a new environment. Start praying, God, bring me some people. Bring me at least one person, more if you can. Bring me a person that can be the Jonathan in my life. God, bring me that person that I know has my back no matter what. And God, I want that friendship to be centered around you. 
Jonathan and David's relationship was so centered around God that Jonathan walked away from being king because God had a different plan. Jonathan said, God's plan is more important than me even being king in our friendship. And you start praying, God, I need some people. Some of you guys are lonely. Some of you go, man, I don't really have a friend. And you know what? You need to start praying that God would move in your life. And you know what's one thing's gonna happen? It's gonna build your relationship with God, which should be your, your, your ultimate relationship before any friend. It's gonna build that relationship and you start praying that God brings somebody to you. And here's the second thing, and this sounds really cheap. I just said, you gotta work. You gotta take some risks. You gotta put yourself out there. Guys, here, I understand, I, I talked to a student this, this week. We're talking about friendships. And the, friend, the student was talking about, hey, you know, I have some friends and sometimes I don't get invited to things. And I said, well, maybe you need to just start inviting some people to things you're doing. And you know what the risk is? You may feel forgotten. Nobody may call you to hang out on Friday night. Nobody may call you to hang out on Saturday night. And that feels bad because you've been forgotten. You've been looked over. But it's not as bad as you planning something and someone saying no. Being rejected is being worse than forgotten. And so we kind of live in the world for God. But if you want to have those friends, as you're praying, God, bring me somebody, you might have to step out there and risk something. You might have to call some people up and say, hey, I don't know if y'all are doing something, but I was thinking about going to the movies. Does anybody want to go? And you know what? They all may say no. They all may say no the second time and the third time. By the fourth time, call some different people. But at some point, at some point as you're praying and you're risking God's gonna start bringing some people into your life and you're gonna find some people that might become your Jonathan. And I'm gonna tell you this, and I'm saying this, I'm saying this as a youth minister, but I'm saying this because it's true. If you wanna find some Jesus-centered friends, one of the easiest ways to do that is to clear your calendar and make sure you're doing things when a youth ministry is doing things. It's the easiest, I mean, listen, when you, when you go on a mission trip, you meet people. The second time you go and you go to camp, you, th those relationships grow. Understand this, every time you miss something, it's not, it's not neutral. You're missing a shared story. You, 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 you'll develop some Jesus-centered friends by being around Jesus-centered people doing Jesus-centered things. That's why, that's why we, we'll even do things like Six Flags. I have some friends that, that, that do youth ministry and they're like, when you do a Six Flags trip, you know, do you like have a devotional? I'm like, no. Because no one wants to do a devotional while they're riding a roller coaster. That's dumb. But they're like, well, you know, I'd have a spiritual. I said, the spiritual thing is we're making Jesus-centered friendships while we're hanging out at Six Flags. That's the, that's the spiritual thing. But you, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to say, you know what? I'm going to go to the retreat. I'm going to go to the mission trip. I'm going to call some friends. I'm going to show up at small groups. And I don't know anybody. And I may not know anybody for the next three months, but I'm not giving up until, God, you answer my prayer. And I'm going to do the work. And God, you do the answer. I'm going to show up. And God, when you bring that friend, I want to be there. So I don't miss them. And that's how you find friends. I'll tell you this. I'm saying that. And there's some upperclassmen over here that struggle with friendships too. But there's some upperclassmen over here. And when I'm saying that, I'm watching them nod their heads because they've experienced it. Start praying. Then you've got to start doing work. I'll tell a quick story real quick because I, I want you to see the power of this. I don't know how I'm doing on time. How am I doing on time? Eight o'clock, okay. Let me tell you, I have a friend named Kim Stroop. It's a picture of her and her husband who's a Navy SEAL. He's killed people. It's pretty awesome. Um, he can't tell you about it, but I know he has. Kim and I, when we were in high school, we went to Russia together as a mission trip. Kim and I were, were youth ministry friends. 
We didn't even hang out on the weekends. We didn't hang out really outside of church and mission trips and things like that. A couple of years ago, she came into town, into Austin. She lives out, she lives all over the world. She's living in Italy, living like on the East Coast now. Came into Austin because her family's kind of together. And I found out on Facebook, she came and said, hey, we got to do lunch. So me, her, and another friend, we all gathered, went down to Austin, ate lunch. I haven't seen her in 20 years. I haven't seen her in 20 years. And we sat around Papacitos talking like, we had hung out last weekend. We're telling stories about that Russian mission trip. And I'm telling stories and we're laughing and we're reminiscing. She's telling stories I'm like, I totally forgot about that. And this friendship that's 20 years old, that was established under the banner of Jesus, still matters. Still matters. I have no doubt that I could call her, she could call me and say, hey, I need something. And we'd be ready to meet that need in a, in a moment. Haven't talked but one time in the last 20 years. Because Jesus-centered friendships matter. And we discovered them in church together. So here's the third thing. Pray, work, and the last thing is this. Be a friend. I asked you, who's your Jonathan? Let me ask you a different question. Who are you a Jonathan to? And we all want a Jonathan. But you realize, Jonathan doesn't get anything out of this, this deal, really. I mean, Jonathan gave up the king the kingship. He gave up his bow, his sword, his priestly garment, his armor. He ended up having his crazy dad throw a spear at him. And David's like, high five. That's what Jonathan got out of it. That's it. But their friendship mattered. So my question, I asked you, who's your Jonathan? And I want you to have one. But maybe the better question is, who are you a Jonathan to? Who, who's the friend that you're, that you're going to go all in with? Maybe that's, your, maybe you need to go home tonight and start praying, going, God, who have you called me to love unconditionally and to have their back no matter what? I'll close with this. I think we're singing another song. So the band, y'all can come on up. But I'll tell you the end of the story of this. And you can read all about it in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. By the end of 1 Samuel, when the book comes to a close, David becomes king. Saul dies. And unfortunately, in a tragic twist in the movie, Jonathan dies as well. David's best friend is killed during the battle. And David loses his best friend and he mourns for his best friend. And then as was tradition in that day, people begin to wipe out Saul's family, all of the grandchildren and stuff like that. Because what they didn't want as a new king is you don't want a great grandchild coming up later and go, wait, wait, wait. That was my grandfather's throne. I'm the rightful king in a civil war. So it was traditional when a new king came and they'd wipe out the family. If you fast forward to 2 Samuel, what does Jonathan get out of it? He dies. But Jonathan had a son. He had a crazy name. His name was Mephibosheth. Yeah, I know. Try that one out at home, Mephibosheth. All of Mephibosheth's family has been killed. What I found out about Mephibosheth is he probably survived because he had two club feet. He was disabled. And in that society, if you were disabled, you were treated like trash. And so he's living in some place and probably being taken care of by somebody else because he's got no family. He's not even a threat to the king. And David's sitting around one day thinking about this friendship, this, this covenant that he and Jonathan made. He's thinking about how Jonathan was this God-centered friend in his life that changed his whole trajectory of his life, took him from an underdog to the king. 
And he calls somebody in and he goes, hey, does Jonathan have any family left? And they go, we don't know, but you know, Saul had a servant that's still around. You can ask him. And he brings in the servant. He asks Saul's servant, he says, hey, does Jonathan have any family left? And he goes, well, and he probably doesn't even want to say because he's thinking, oh, I know about Mephibosheth. David's going to kill him. He says, yeah, there's a son, king. His name's Mephibosheth. He's lame. He can't walk. I mean, he's, he's useless. David says, bring him to me. I would hate to have been Mephibosheth that day when they go in, they go, hey, the king wants to see you. They carry him in. And David sees the son of his best friend. And you know what he does? When Mephibosheth thinks he's gonna get a sword, David says, I remember your dad. I'm paraphrasing. Your dad and I made a covenant. Your dad and I were best friends. Your dad was, your dad was the God-centered friendship that I had that changed my life. And I miss your dad. He says, Mephibosheth, I'm giving you all of Saul's land. All of the land that the former king owned now rightfully goes to the guy who had been set out by the trash pile. And David says this, you'll eat at my table. You'll eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. Because God-centered friendships matter. And I want you to have them. You need them. Some of us, you gotta start praying. God, we, I need that. God knows. And you're gonna start doing the work. You're gonna start showing up places where God-centered friendships can develop. Trusting God to bring a Kim Stroop into your life. Trusting him to bring that friend who's gonna be your Jonathan. And maybe as you're praying about it and you're thinking about friendships, just be open to the fact that God may call you to be a Jonathan to somebody. Where you give and you give and you give and you don't get the reward until way later. Friendships matter. Got the story tonight of an underdog who experienced that. I'm gonna pray for you.